Oh, hang on, I have a beer delivery from my lovely wife. Bring in the beer. <laughs> That's the least romantic thing I've heard. <laughs> we have a, a beer advent calendar. Like every day you get like a can of something interesting. Thank you, which one's this? The Sour Hazy. Sour the Hazy. Bake Empire. Oh, it's not as sour as it usually is. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. On with the show. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show, the podcast where we talk about all things moon related. My name is Andy, a self-appointed moon expert, and I'm here with my co-host Rick, who is the non-moon expert. This is episode 19 and we're recording it on the 15th of December. Why I'm mentioning this date will be important later on because we're going to be talking about moon news such as Changi 5, it's on its way back from the moon, updates regarding the Earth's second moon 2020 SO, some foreign moon news with the recovered lost moons of Jupiter, which is somewhat of an exclusive, so stick around for that one, and of course everyone's favourite full moon of the month, and the next moon is, and we'll end the show on Prime Moonister's questions. But without further ado, Rick, how are you doing? Uh, I'm alright Andy, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I've been busy editing a other podcast, which will be released later on in December, which is a bit of a surprise, but hopefully you'll all enjoy it. Uh, so most of my time has been spent doing that. How about you? What have you been up to? Right, yeah, this is the bit where I've got to think of something interesting I've done since last time. Uh, I have started... <laughs> in my exciting life, I have started reading Northern Lights. As in, the thing that what is on telly at the moment that I'm reading. Is that Philip Pullman? It is, yes. So I've never read it. Is that the one with the polar bears from Svalbard? Yeah, that's the one. It's currently called The Dark Materials uh, on BBC because they're dealing with the whole of the trilogy in some mixed up order. And to be honest, wasn't that impressed with either the film of Northern Lights or the current BBC series. It's all right, but... If you said, oh, this is a major book and it sold millions, I'd go, why? This is <laughs> this is terrible, based on the adaptation. But from the book, you can see why, because it's one of those where the book has a lot more going on in it than, uh, than the TV show can get across. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, this actually ties quite nicely into what I have also been doing, but deemed it a bit uninteresting for the podcast, but it's kind of related now. I've been rebooking my honeymoon to Svalbard. Oh, right. Because originally I was meant to go to Svalbard on the 17th of March 2020. And, <laughs> and why, why on earth didn't you? Well, why on earth didn't I? I was in the queue going through customs at Heathrow Airport, and I was scrolling through my phone. I I'd liked. So a bit of backpedalling. So before you backpedal, I'm looking forward to your holiday being cancelled because you liked a Facebook post. I'm wondering what, <laughs> what, what on earth did you like? Some sort of, you know, hijackers forum or something. <laughs> so part of the trip to Svalbard was doing lots of activities, and one of the activities was going on a brewery tour at one of the only breweries in Svalbard. I'm quite into my craft beer, so it seemed quite a cool way to spend an afternoon in basically the North Pole is going to a brewery at the North Pole. And I like them on Facebook just because they look like they had some cool ideas and it's like, oh, well, so it'd be a nice souvenir of the trip to see them pop up on my newsfeed after the trip. So I was in the line for Heathrow Airport and then I was scrolling through Facebook and then I saw, oh no, they're cancelling the brewery tours. And in my head, I was like, oh, 
that's frustrating. That's an afternoon gone. We might, we won't be able to get our deposit back because it's too soon. And then I kept reading it and they said, in line with government law or in line with the new laws, like, hang on a minute. If a brewery's shutting down, does this mean all of Svalbard is shutting down? And so once my wife and I had gone through customs, we were sat there in the airport lobby just scrolling through the government travel page, which had not been updated yet. I'm looking on the embassy website for Norway. She is looking on the travel advice for Svalbard. And all of this information is being updated minute by minute. So it's all edge of the seat. Our flight is at half five. And by four, there's a news conference saying we're banning all entry of travellers into Norway. <laughs> so we're thinking, well, should we go? Should we not go? This is our honeymoon and there's a, there's a significant amount of money that has been sunk into a lot of these trips. Should we go on this trip or not? And then we went to the help desk to see would we be able to get a refund on our flights? No was the answer, but maybe speak to the help desk online or call them up, see if we can get some flight tips. And basically, we decided there and then, based on what the Norwegian government had said less than 10 minutes ago, we will not be boarding this flight. So we had to go to the help desk and say, is there anything you could do? And she said, well, we'll put a note on your flight profile that says you declined the flight, which is very different from being a no-show. It's like a qualifier that allows you to get air miles or vouchers or something like that. Yeah. So then we had to do the saddest walk of shame ever through the airport. Have you ever had to go through the airport on the domestic side where you've basically said, I'm not getting on this flight? No, no. Generally, if I go to an airport, I get on the flights. I'm a bit traditionalist. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had to go through the reverse passport control, basically, to make sure that we were British citizens, that we were allowed back in the country, and that we had to stand at the conveyor belt and wait for our bags to arrive. And it's not like the little surprise of, oh, I wonder whose bags are going to come first. We knew full well whose bags were going to come first this time around. On the screen, you know, where it says, you know, this flight has come from Azerbaijan or whatever. <laughs> Did it say on the screen, this this, uh, this is not a flight, these people haven't even travelled? Uh, no, it just had quitters flashing yeah. over and over. <laughs> Bracket. <laughs> Brackets, it's their honeymoon. <laughs> Didn't make it this far, did they? I hope your marriage goes better than this. <laughs> um, thankfully, they weren't that mean. So we then picked up our bags and then we went home and just spent the night at my wife's mother's house while we <laughs> basically figured out how are we going to claw back our money. Thankfully, all of the tour groups involved were really understanding and we've been able to shift all the dates to 2021. Oh, that's good. But the apocalypse is still happening. So I've had to spend the last week shifting it from 2021 to 2022. Wow. Will the, uh, the brewery still be in business? I think so, because not only do they supply a lot of the, all of the beer on Svalbard, which is an island right in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, uh, with it well within the Arctic Circle, they also supply a lot of the uh, still water, clean water and carbonated water because they've got all the refinery stuff there so they do lots of other products so i think they'll be fine and they're the only ones there so they've got kind of a monopoly yeah it sounds like they're an essential utility uh yes yeah pretty much it's like asking you know will the local reservoir still be there yeah it probably will you know, it's, it's a water <laughs> supply 
so yeah, that was uh, that's what I've been doing this week. Uh, I didn't mean to go on a bit of a rant about <laughs> rebooking my honeymoon, but I'm 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 glad that the book at least lives up to the lofty standards that precedes it, whereas the adaptations were a bit nah. Yeah, no, um, the, in the book, they, they also tried to travel and then get booted off the plane. <laughs> so, there is some big moon news. Chang'e 5, it's on its way back from the moon with the first lunar samples in over 40 years. Now, Chang'e 5 is obviously the follow-on from Chang'e 4, which you know I'm a massive champion of, and Chang'e 5 has been launched late November, gone to the moon, drilled into the surface, grabbed the sample, it's now on its way back from the moon and is going to enter the Earth's atmosphere later on this month. Now, when I say Chang'e 5, it's actually a four-stage procedure to it. So this little probe has had four sections to it and it's a genuinely incredible mission. I'll put um, a link to the video that explains it in a bit more detail in, in the show notes just so you've got a nice visual to it. But essentially you've got a rocket that has taken a probe to the moon. This probe has sent down a little lander. This lander has drilled into the surface, taken a sample. The lander has then sent up a little launcher which has then met back up with the actual probe that put it there in the first place and it's left the moon's orbit and it's on its way back to Earth. That's impressive engineering. That is incredible engineering and while this has been done 40 years previously in the last time it happened was in 1976 I think with Luna 24 but that only recovered I think 170 grams worth of lunar material whereas Chang'e 5 will be bringing back at least two kilograms worth. It's still an incredible feat of engineering to have this all done automatically by robots without any human intervention. Yeah, I'm imagining this is, uh, you know, those those claws that come down in the fairground and sort of pick up a teddy bear. That you, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of as though the claw was detached from the actual claw mechanism, went down, picked up its own teddy bear, refound its way back to the mechanism uh, first time, and the whole machine was a few miles high and on the moon. Yes, kind of, but unlike the claw machines, <laughs> which don't do what you tell it to do. Chang'e 5 has done exactly what it has been told to do. And better yet, as a coder, you will know all too well how frustrating this is. The people gave the correct set of instructions to the code, because the amount of times you've given code instructions and there's been a human error where you've like missed out a line of code that says, stop when you find the result. And then it just go, just keeps carrying on for infinity. And I'm like, no, you were meant to stop when you found it. But you didn't tell me to do that. It may have happened once or twice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Chang'e 5 actually managed to... like. It, it's genuinely an incredible feat of engineering. Even if it is unsuccessful and burns up in the atmosphere at this point, it'll be a crying shame. But the achievements that it has accomplished so far should be celebrated. Absolutely. Can you just remind everyone, including me, uh, what's the difference between Chang'e 4 and Chang'e 5? Ah, yes. Sorry, I got a bit carried away there. Chang'e 4 
took U-22 to the dark side of the moon. So Changi-4 was the lander that had a little rover on it. So Changi-4 was a relay station and sent off U-22 off into the world. Well, I say the world, the dark side of the moon. And U-22 is still going. It's still exploring the dark side of the moon, relaying photos and information back to Changi-4, which is beaming up to one of the Chinese satellites around the moon. Sorry, this is part of the Chinese Lunar Exploration Program, which I think is part of their overall big step forward, great leap forward kind of space exploration program because they're planning a manned mission to the moon at some point and then that'll be folded into Mars. It's lots of big ideas. But Changi 4 was all about taking a small rover to the far side of the moon and exploring it. Changi 5 is about taking a lander to the moon, getting a sample and then bringing it back to Earth, which so far so good, it's due to bring back the sample within the next few weeks, probably by the end of this week, and when I said I'm recording on the 15th of December, chances are by the time this comes out, Changi 5 will have entered Earth's atmosphere and probably have returned the samples by now. So unlike Changi 4, which landed on the dark side of the moon, and while there has been exploration on that side of the moon, it hasn't been photographed as up close as it has been with Changi 4 or with U-22, so it's kind of a trailblazer in that aspect. Changi 5 is kind of treading familiar ground because it's landing on something called Mons Rumpka, which is on the near side of the moon, was photographed by the Apollo missions quite up close actually, but one of the reasons why it's landing there is because the ground is suspected to be quite young, about 1.2 billion years old. <laughs> yep, uh, <laughs> cradle snatcher. <laughs> Yes, quite literally in this case, uh, snatching some of that cradle and bringing it back. But the other Apollo samples, I believe, are between 3 and 4.4 billion years old. So this is 2 billion years younger than the samples we already have. So this will be able to give scientists a much greater insight into the younger material on the moon, which is more important because this tells us more about space weathering, the makeup of the asteroids that hit the surface of the moon in recent years compared to three to four billion years ago. So it allows you to study the younger aspects of the moon. And obviously a billion years old is still quite old, but compared to four billion, it's still younger and gives you a better idea of what happened in the later stages of the moon's formation. I'm glad you clarified it was a sort of measuring the soil samples or as opposed to the way you said it before, which is just a billion year old sample will give better information. I just imagine a two billion year old sample in front of scientists going, oh, I don't remember. Was it a Tuesday? <laughs> tr trying to recant over the X many billion years of, you know, when it bought some milk or something. <laughs> Quick, go to timeanddate.com and put, put in the exact date. Yeah, it's just just trying to work out. Yeah, you know, is it a Tuesday or a Wednesday? And uh, especially w converting between lunar days and Earth days, and also it would work in Fahrenheit. You know, it would. I don't suppose you've seen a photo of what the landing site looks like. Um, I've seen a picture of the moon. Uh, okay, well, this is. <laughs> do you want? Do you want a bit closer? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, a, a bit closer. <laughs> 
Um, so Mons Rumka is what could be described as volcanic domes. So like a volcano is like a cone shape. Whereas imagine you've got boils on your skin and you've got like several boils next to each other that are like these like perfectly spherical domes. It looks like that made of rock on the near side of the moon and it is very alien to look at. We have them here on Earth, but they get eroded very quickly, so they just fall into the fall into the foreground, so they're very easy to like miss, especially from a bird's eye view. Whereas on the moon, there's no weathering, there's no erosion, so they keep perfectly spherical and it looks really alien. Have you managed to, managed to get a photo of them up? Yeah, I see what you mean. It does look like a boil. Yeah, the moon should get that looked at. <laughs> well, thankfully, it's getting it partially lanced by Chang'e 5 because it's drilled two metres into it. <laughs> I'd laugh if it starts to erupt. <laughs> Just drilling two metres in is enough to set off the moon. Of, oh, no! <laughs> We've angered it! Well... Chang'e 5 has actually left something on the moon. It left a tiny little Chinese flag. Oh, right. As in a tiny one. Not a big one like the Americans left. Is it one of those where, you know, when there's a football competition and people stick flags in their cars? Is it one of those size? It weighs 12 grams. So I think it might be smaller than that. Is it one that you sort of put in a cocktail on a cocktail <laughs> stick and cheese and pineapple type flag? Yeah, if you're having a Eurovision party and you just put all the various flags on the different cheeses that you got from yeah. Aldi. Oh right, it's one of them, the Chinese one. I think it's probably a bit sturdier, but this means that China is the second nation to plant a flag on the moon. Oh, well done, China. But it is also worth noting it's a fabric flag, whereas other landers to the moon, like the lunar ones from the Soviet Union, which will be impactors, and the Israeli missions, and the Indian missions, they will have had their nation's flag on the actual spacecrafts, or impactors, or probes that hit the moon, but they don't count because that's a flag on the body of a spacecraft. Whereas with the Chang'e 5 mission, it's an actual physical flag that was designed to be taken out of the probe and planted on the moon, which is a nice distinction to make. Well, at least I think so. Uh, yeah, that sounds very impressive. Although, if it's so small, it is prone just to be kicked over. You know, <laughs> an American astronaut who, who walks past might just happen to stamp it into the ground. But if they're feeling particularly vindictive, then they might do. But this sample return mission is not only an amazing feat of engineering, it's also just quite a spectacular thing to get swept up in, because... Unlike the previous missions, there's so much photography and video footage that has been beamed back on a minute-by-minute -minute basis thanks to the wonders of the internet. It's all been shared on Twitter. So you've got, for example, the moment of ignition from the Chang'e 5 ascending from the moon back to meet up with its orbiter. Like, you've got actual video and photographic footage of this. That's fantastic. And you've got actual footage of the Chang'e 5 lander descending onto the moon. And you've got it like the nice spherical lunar horizon and then it getting flatter and flatter as it starts to descend. It's incredible footage to see and just thinking that this is beamed back from over 384,000 kilometres away and I'm just looking at it on my phone while I'm on the toilet. It's quite amazing. <laughs> it's what the scientists want. <laughs> it's the march of progress. <laughs> So talking of video footage, I just happened to be watching a, uh, a moon conspiracy theory video, uh, as I do. 
don't worry, I do believe the moon exists and the landings took place, but it's interesting to see what uh, what people think. And one of the arguments against the moon landings being real is, you know, when they took off, one of the later landers had a camera sort of follow it. And they said, oh no, hang on, if all the astronauts got on that launcher, and who was moving the camera? Now NASA's line is they had an automated camera that would just pan upwards. And the conspiracy theorists said, well, that's just impossible, you know. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, hang on, they've landed. <laughs> Forget- <laughs> forgetting everything else. It's just like Na- the-, the story from NASA is that they've landed someone on the moon and launched them back off. And you're now wanting us to believe it's impossible they've had a tilty camera that can tilt it's just like no come on you can you can pick other arguments but that one is not a goer that really is like the worst argument yes yes exactly and these are probably the same people who play the likes of gta and call of duty which have homing missiles in the rocket launchers and the helicopters that they use in the game which have trackers on so considering you are saying here is a eagle lander launcher ascending vehicle of this shape and it's going to be taken off at this time you're giving it all the times of measurements hell you could even not automatically track it you could just get the camera to tilt upwards at the exact time and it would do it perfectly uh, um, yeah that's basically it i personally could not build a rocket ship to the moon with people on it. However, I could build a camera that on a pull of a string would move upwards. I'm pretty sure NASA can afford a string. I think they can afford the string, but can you imagine the checklist of just like, all right, we're off. Hey, did you remember to tie the string to the camera? Oh no, I forgot. How will people know that we took off from the moon? <laughs> you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. If you move the camera, then it's fake. If you don't move the camera, well, you could, it's, it's fake. Uh, yeah. On that as well, that they do mistime it. On, so they use this camera technique on multiple launches from the moon on different missions, and some of them they just mistime it completely, so the <laughs> the camera tilts early or late or whatever, or oh, not really? at all. So, yeah, you can you can have a look at the sort of, quote-unquote, the incompetence of NASA. Can you believe it? <laughs> it needs to be with the uh, hands on either side of your cheek, shocked look during the thumbnail of, can you believe the incompetence of NASA? Oh, kind of look. Do you know what? There's going to be people who say that this footage of Changi 5 is fake. Looking at it, I don't see how you could fake it, and it is genuinely incredible to look at. I'll obviously post some of it in the show notes, but I, I think this is a, a remarkable probe that is accomplishing something incredible, and I really hope that it succeeds. I think it will, but I don't want to tempt fate, so by the time this is out, Changi 5 will have landed and brought back the first lunar samples in many, many years. Hello, future Andy here. So it turns out while listening back to this segment of the podcast, I refer to 2020 SO as 2022 SO constantly. Not once do I say 2020 SO and call Earth's second moon or the mini moon or the near Earth asteroid by its proper name of 2020 SO. Instead, I call it 2022 SO. So I'm just apologizing now for getting it wrong from this point on. Sorry. 
So, in other moon news, we have an update regarding Earth's second moon, which has been confirmed to indeed be Surveyor 2. Occasionally, Earth will get a second moon, and this will be due to near-Earth asteroids getting caught up in Earth's gravitational pull, getting drawn towards us, but not being able to keep a stable orbit. So, occasionally, Earth will get a mini-moon or a second moon occasionally, and there'll be near-Earth asteroids that get caught in the orbit. In the last few months, one of these near-Earth asteroids that was a temporary second moon of Earth was called 22SO, and it was thought, based on its trajectory, its near-perfect orbit around the Sun, and the spectral makeup of it, when I say spectral makeup, when they looked at the light coming back from it, it appeared to be mostly metallic and mostly similar to a rocket. More studies and observations have been done on it, and it turns out that this was indeed part of the rocket that took Surveyor 2 to the moon. So it's not a proper moon? It's not a proper moon. It is a man-made satellite as opposed to a natural satellite, which is the alternative name for the moon. Okay, so it, it would have to be sort of natural to be a moon, but it's not. We built it. Yes, one of those organic satellite. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is this where you find a sort of, I don't know, a hill at the bottom of your garden of thorn bush and you think, oh, that's all mystical. And then you look at it closer and actually it's an overgrown shed. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's not at all natural. It's just uh, man-made and we forgot it was there. Uh, yes, kind of like that. It was always suspected that it probably would be the upper stages of the Centaur rocket that took Surveyor 2 to the moon. But further observations have discovered that it is indeed the upper stages of the rocket and how they found this out is genuinely incredible. So what I mentioned before they use the spectral data which is looking at the light shine back from it and you can put this into a spectrometer and it'd be able to say okay this light is made up of this much hydrogen, this much titanium, this much metal and then they would take those spectral readings and compare them to the makeup of what the Centaur rocket would be and be like oh yeah it is mostly titanium that's what the Centaur rocket was made of oh it's got a bit of aluminium in it this also has a bit of aluminium but the spectral data that they got back, considering this is like hundreds of thousands of kilometers away, it's still hard to get a pinpoint reading. So like, it probably is, but we can't be 100% sure just because the uncertainty of the data is just too big. And there's also something called space weathering, which is due to the fact that this has been outside of Earth's atmosphere and not protected by our glorious atmosphere, this rocket booster has been bombarded with solar radiation, solar wind, all sorts of charged particles that will erode and change the makeup of the actual rocket. So the astronomers compared the data and were like, yes, this could be the rocket based on the spectral data. However, we don't have anything to compare it to. We don't know if this is what a rocket would look like if it has been in space for the last 40 years. Oh, wait, what if there is a rocket that has been in space for the last 40 years? And it just so happens that there was. In fact, there's quite a few bits of rocket floating about Earth. And so they observed a rocket booster that was sent up in 1971, which is roughly around the same time that Surveyor 2 was taken to the moon. And they looked at this rocket from the 1970s that was floating around Earth, looked at the spectral data of that, compared it to the spectral data of 22SO, and it perfectly aligned, and they basically confirmed that 22SO was a rocket booster based on observing this random piece of space junk they knew was there. That's amazing. That is some incredible detective work right there. 
That is fantastic. I was thinking, though, that, yeah, hang on a minute, if there's a random bit of rocket going around from the 1970s that's not useful, it's, well, that's just littering. Yes, that's why I said it was space junk. Yeah, I feel that's wrong, and I feel by comparing it and making it useful, we've now vindicated space littering. <laughs> so, so someone can sort of throw a bit of junk into space and say, well, it might be useful in 40 years' time. Science. Um, maybe... <laughs> I think this is like a single pro in a list of 10,000 cons. <laughs> yeah, so it is amazing. And I think now we've got this reference piece of space junk from the 1970s, we should probably just keep it. That's now the reference bit. Everything else, tidy up after yourselves. You're going to flip when you see Starlink then. That is genuinely going to ruin stargazing. Sorry, the Russian dictator? Starlink. <laughs> Starlink. Not Stalin. Right, okay. I, was gonna... <laughs> I, I think, yeah, having Stalin at your astronomy evening would ruin it. Because he'd be like, you'd be looking through the telescope and he'd be like, no, under communism, I get to share. Like, we can't have two of us on the same telescope. It's too small. We can have multiple discoverers. We are a team. We are at all. So, yeah, I agree. Stalin would ruin everything. And Starlink. Did I tell you I tried to look for that when they were launching it and... Because they said, oh, there'll be five dots sort of circling the Earth, and I didn't see it. I think I went out on the same night that you tried to look for it, because it was over Gloucestershire, when they were like, oh, it's going to be over, yeah. over this point of the sky. And I think they screwed up the times, because I went out with a bunch of other people and didn't see anything. Whereas the night before, I did manage to see the International Space Station go overhead, which is pretty cool. Uh, and you could always see when that's going overhead there's wonderful websites that tell you when it's overhead which is quite cool uh but yeah starlink is already screwing up telescopic observations when people are trying to get like they're called deep field views where you need to like focus on a certain bit of sky well a sliver of the sky a tiny little bit of it and focus on it for a long time to get as much exposure as you can and then starlink just waltzes in and just completely blurs your photo it's uh it's already causing problems and it's going to cause more and more problems going forward so astronomers are pretty annoyed about this. Yeah. Is it like a, a wildlife observers group in a hide waiting for the rarest of badgers and there's some idiot near the set just waving a high beam torch around at the, <laughs> at the wildlife group? It's over there. Yeah. Look, guys, I can see a badger. <laughs> no, no, they're not even firing at the badger. They're just firing at the hide. Good luck, you lot. <laughs> Yeah, but thankfully um, we have managed to capture some non-Starlink-hindered photos of 22SO. In fact, there's an incredible one taken by Nick D. James, uh, which was shared to us in the Discord chat. And you can actually see the rocket tumbling through the night sky. So it moves from one side of the image to the other, and it's just going at a constant speed, but you can tell that it's tumbling and rotating based on the way it's getting brighter and darker. And that's absolutely incredible to be able to see from just this tiny dot in the sky, you can tell it's tumbling. Yeah, no, that you can definitely see it's rotating. It's as though someone put an LED on a Frisbee and then sort of threw it at twilight sort of thing. So you can kind of see the LED sort of going slow and fast uh, against this other object or moving relative to the object and the object's moving at one speed, the LED's moving at another. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's quite hypnotic to look at. So the reason why it's tumbling is something called the Yorp 
effect, Y-O-R-P, which is an acronym based on all of the scientists who developed this principle over the course of many years of research. And it's very, very basically the YORP effect is what causes asteroids and bits of rock in space to tumble and rotate quite rapidly. And this is based solely on solar radiation. So highly charged particles from solar winds, solar particles, all blasting out the sun at a high speed. There's nothing in the vacuum of space to slow them down. So they smack into these rocks, and in this case, a rocket booster, and they hit it so frequently, and due to solar flares uh, snapping and sending off all these particles, these particles will come in ebbs and flow, very much like the wind does. One day it'll be nice and windy, then it'll be quite calm. So this will then hit the rocks with enough momentum over enough time to just cause them to rotate and there's no friction in space to stop them. So if you have no friction and you just lightly poke something with a velocity of one meter per hour, it will move one meter per hour because there's nothing stopping it. There's no friction. So if you have these tiny, tiny, basically weightless particles smacking into a rock, it might be insignificant at first, but over enough time, it's going to cause it to rotate. And that's exactly what's happened with this rocket booster. Particles from the sun have been hitting it for long enough that it's actually started to tumble. And um, what was that effect called? The YORP effect, Y-O-R-P. Have you seen hot fuzz? <laughs> I have seen hot fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you know what? I think it might be known as the YARP effect as well. I'm just going to double check this. Whilst Andy checks that, for people who haven't seen Hot Fuzz, there's a character that just says YARP. Alas, it is not. It is the Yarkovsky O'Keefe Radzivsky Padak effect, or YORP for short. Y O R P. Okay, cool. Not named after the bloke in Hot Fuzz. No, who is also Sandor Clegane from Game of Thrones as well. Oh, okay, cool. But you've not seen that. I've not seen it. I've read the books. Did you like the books? Uh, yeah, they're entertaining. They got a bit samey after a while. And don't spoil it, I've read... How many books have come out? Seven. Seven have come out, and I, I'm guessing Daenerys will eventually end up in Westeros. She still hasn't. Well, I think the show somewhat deviated from what George R. 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 Martin wanted. So even if I tell you what happens in the show, I think that is going to be different from what he has in his head. However, I'm still not going to tell you anyway because I don't want to influence your character arcs. That's fine. No, it's more the... Um, if you've not read or seen Game of Thrones, there are lots of characters. It's all intertwined. 99% of the characters are in a place called Westeros. And then there's like, meanwhile, in this other part of the world, <laughs> there's this completely independent plotline going on where someone's raising dragons. It's like, okay, fine. I'm guessing that that person is going to go to Westeros eventually with some dragons. But at the moment, by book seven, they haven't got round to it. And <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> People from Westeros have gone over to her and said, oh, yeah, look at these dragons. But it's <laughs> like, come on, <laughs> if, if that doesn't happen... Have you heard of Chekhov's gun? Like, if you show a gun, then someone should be murdered in the story. You don't introduce the concept of a gun and never use it. Uh, yes. You don't introduce the entire concept of another plot line with dragons. And it's like, you know what? We'll just stay here. <laughs> 
<laughs> Do you know what um, the millennial equivalent of that would be? Like one of my favourite movie review channels, Red Letter Media, refer to this a lot. They don't call it Chekhov's gun. They call it the fireworks factory. Yeah. Because do you remember that episode of The Simpsons with Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie? Yes. And then you have like a car full of dynamite. They're like, we're off to the fireworks factory. And they never, ever get to the fireworks factory. Yes. So whenever a plot is like taking ages, it's just an in-joke to go, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? Yeah, I thought it was amusing at the end of book one where it hadn't resolved. And I was like, okay, fine. He's setting up for another book. Yeah, seven books later. <laughs> Come on. Give me my dragons. <laughs> yeah. So, in summary, 22SO has been discovered to be a bit of an old rocket that has gone once around the sun, maybe a couple of times by this point, and they discovered this by comparing it to another rocket that was sent up at the same time, which is pretty good science. Probably the shortest bit of moon news we'll do to date, there has been another near-Earth object that has been discovered, so another mini moon for earth because it's going to get caught in the earth's orbit so we're going to get a temporary moon again for the end of 2020 and it's a bit of old rocket that's not a proper moon then it's not a proper it's moon. Not. <laughs> although i should point out it's not old rocket it's actually it's a german russian collaboration called the specter rg and i believe it's like an observatory put in space so it's not a bit of old rocket it's still in use but it was spotted by astronomers and then they were like, oh, near-Earth asteroid. It was given a designation and then based on the orbital parameters, they calculated it, put, in, put it into the computer and were like, hang on, this matches a spacecraft. Is it the spacecraft? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, it's not a mini moon then, is it? So yet again, what was thought to be a mini moon has turned out to be a bit of space junk, as you would put it, or space litter, though this one's actually quite useful. But it kind of highlights the issue that uh, it's getting a bit cluttered up there, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm just looking at the animation of it as well. Once again, it's one of these drunken rocks that appears. <laughs> Did you say it was an observatory? When I say observatory as in it has a telescope, it observes the heavens and then beams back the data to Earth. Okay, it's not a full-on observatory with, like, astronomers in it. And volunteers to, to man the gift shop. <laughs> yeah, that sort of just got sent off into space accidentally and now they're wandering around drunk. But I start year 10 in September, can I... <laughs> Can I come back? No, <laughs> off you go, child. Well, if you want to head out, you know, open the door, little Jimmy. Off you go into the vacuum <laughs> of space. Good luck. Till then, on this observatory, your job is either toilet cleaner or observer. Okay, so now we're going on to foreign moon news. Uh, and this is the bit of the show where we talk about moons that do not belong to the Earth. So therefore, foreign moon news. And this, I'm going to call an exclusive for the podcast. Ooh. Ooh, indeed. So I have the channel Discord. By the way, if you would like to be included in the Discord, please tweet me, send me an email, let me know if you want to be involved, and I will happily invite you to the chat because it's great. We all talk about moon-related things. It's mostly one guy called N3 who is doing some phenomenal, phenomenal work recovering some of the lost moons of Jupiter. So when I say lost moons, this means that they were once observed a few years ago, but they haven't been observed again since due to planetary and solar perturbations. So bigger bodies like the Sun and Jupiter, and maybe even bigger bodies nearby like Saturn, like their gravitational pull is affecting the orbit of these far out moons. So their orbits are somewhat distorted and therefore a bit chaotic and unpredictable. But anyway, N3 
has been going through archival footage of the moons of Jupiter. I believe it's a Canadian observatory on Mauna Kea, the CFHT, which is Canada France Hawaii Telescope. And that's set on Mauna Kea, and this is observing the heavens, and it's looking at Jupiter, the skies around Jupiter. And they'll be doing observations of the skies, and they'll be saying, there is a moon in this bit of sky, taking a photo, but not actually finding the moon there. But the way it works is they take photos of the sky, and then looking at where the moon should be, can you find the moon in that image? And so N3 has been going through these images and recovering the lost moons. And he's recovered not one, but two this month. And he's currently working on a third. And not only has he uncovered these lost moons of Jupiter, the submissions have been sent to the minor planet centers. So I think at the time of recording, they are still considered lost, even though he has recovered them. They just need to be officially recognised as recovered. But he's also managed to prove that what was thought to be the outermost moon of Jupiter is not actually the outermost moon of Jupiter. That was S2003J2. So one of these many moons that was discovered in batches in 2003. And it was thought that this moon might be the most distant moon of Jupiter. However, the uncertainty on that was quite high. And so he has gone through these archival footage, looked for the moons in that bit of sky and done many, many observations. And it was actually pretty cool looking for the one for S2003J23 when he was looking through the footage and going, oh, the uncertainty is 10 and now it's eight, now it's seven. And then managing to get the uncertainty down to four. Why is that parameter important? Well, it means that this orbit is quite accurate, and if the uncertainty is less than 7, then you've essentially recovered a moon. So he was trying to get the uncertainty down below 7. Point is, not only has he recovered these two moons, he's managed to prove that the outermost moon of Jupiter is not the outermost moon of Jupiter. It was thought to be S2003J2, but it's in fact now S2017J1, which is a moon that I made a video for when it was first discovered. That was one of the first moons to actually get popular on my channel, which I'm really quite happy about. I sent that to Scott Shepard and he included it in the press release. So that was one of the first videos that actually got a bit more recognition. So I, I quite like this moon for that reason. Excellent. Yeah, it is amazing on the uh, chat because I, I drop in occasionally and sort of wonder what's going on because there's like, <laughs> hang on, it's kind of the equivalent of if you're on a medical chat. It's like, oh, I've cured cancer. No, I've cured another cancer. It's like, okay, hang on. N3 keeps finding these moons, which is amazing. Yeah, I will apologise because I was actually revising for an exam at the time uh, where I had to learn loads of different things about Microsoft Azure cloud computing. So uh, <laughs> le learning all these S slash J... 2001 things was just like oh hang on random numbers and digits I've, I've got enough of those at the moment I'm gonna not read uh too much into this otherwise I'll remember it and it'll push some other useful fact out uh so so no I'm just <laughs> I'm quickly scrolling through now so ah I see what the uncertainty values are so I can see the u values are gradually getting smaller ah that's good isn't it uh, and for what it's worth you know my uncertainty value never goes below about 20. <laughs> I'm not, not sure if I exist. So uh, at the time of recording, I don't think the Minor Planet Center has actually mentioned anything. I'll obviously put in the show notes Minor Planet Center press releases and whatnot. But one thing that I did want to highlight from this whole chat, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, is what are the images that he managed to find at this distant moon? 
I could not have found this. And if you told me in the image that I'm looking at, which has two stars and a moon, I still couldn't find the moon. And that's because the moon in this image is probably one pixel out of a million. And it happens to be in exactly the same location as a galaxy is in this image. <laughs> and the galaxy is bulging a bit on the right and therefore this bulges the moon because it's in exactly where it should be based on the data. I could not have found this. I find it genuinely astonishing how anyone could. So when you see me like type in the chat like, that's amazing. I'm not just being polite. This is genuinely amazing. Yeah, that's it. No, genuinely well done N3. It's, it's fantastic stuff and I'm, I'm privileged to look at it, you know, before anyone else as, as well. But yeah, I'm, I do, there is a little part of my brain that says, oh, he, he could be faking it. You know, I've seen so many conspiracy theories based on shonky photo work I'm thinking, could this be a guy, a guy who's faking because I, I can't disprove it because I have no idea what I'm looking at you know it's a dot on a sea of dots with slightly different colored dots but I, as soon as it's recognized yeah no no when it's I fundamentally believe it because it sounds he's, he's lovely in chat but as soon as it's recognized obviously by proper people who know what they're doing that would be fantastic because, um, yeah, me recognising it means nothing because I, I can just about recognise my log on screen. <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing, Rick. As N3 pointed out and as N3 does, when, when he shows an image, he then puts the data beneath it with all the like numbers that you take away and plug into an observatory database in order to get the images for yourself. As he pointed out when he started the search, uh, I'm going to quote here, all this data is public and it has been public for the last 15 years and someone, no one has thought to go and recover a moon. This is your chance to recover a long lost moon and become one of the first amateur astronomers to recover a moon without help from professional astronomers, which is exactly what he's managed to do. And he's going to be one of the first people to do this. Yeah, that's fantastic. Just on that as well, you know, having seen this on, say, my left hand screen and complete and utter nonsense on my right hand screen and having studied science, you do get a good gut feel for people who know what they're doing and provide all the transparency, all the evidence and all. You, you get this feel of, ah, right, they are being scientific. Whereas on the other screen, it's like, well, this is just, you know, shampoo commercial science. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, I'd be interested in, like, can you do a video, Andy, on uh, how to discover a moon? So if we can all go and like download a, a one of these things and try and find our own moons. Yes, I think that's something that I will probably do. With the help and permission of N3, I'll try and do it for S2003J23. Here is where you get the data. Here is how you ask for permission. Here is the software you use. Here is how you track it. Here is how you make the animation in paint. And here is how you upload it to Wikipedia. I think that could either be a fantastic example of citizen science or a terrible example of people coming back and just circling stars and saying, is that a moon? <laughs> I could either advance society by 20 <laughs> moons or take us back by 700. I'm going to roll the dice on this one. Yeah, just as a little uh, coda to that story as well. Because, yeah, obviously N3's, uh, we chat to him and he's a great person. I do feel, though, that there's a, a level of just sort of journalistic impartiality we don't have on this story. It's like the uh, the newspaper reporters who are at the riots. I can't remember which one, the G7 riots or something. And they kind of just ran into the, <laughs> the uh, CS gas themselves and then ran back to the camera and reported that journalists had been CS gas. So ah. <laughs> I, I kind of think it's, it's, yeah, are we allowed to report that sort of one of our own has found stuff? 
I'm sure we are. The world of moon uh, news is not that cutthroat. That's a better analogy than what I was going to use. I was going to use the one of Ed Kemper talking to the cops and saying like, oh, you know, what murders have you found then? And he was so charming that the cops would just chat to him anyway. Oh, right. And, And then eventually when he confessed to these horrendous murders that he did, the cops were like, oh, Ed, what are you like? They thought he was joking and then he just got away scot free. He just walked away from the cops and they didn't listen. Uh, By the way, Ed 3, we're not calling you a psychopathic murderer or a journalist wandering into gas for (laughs) for a good headline. We're commenting we're impartial. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, just just to confirm, we're the murderers. We're the clickbaiters. Yeah. Uh, and just to uh, sort of emphasise N3's um, devotion to the channel, I mean, he's not even listening or able to hear us because we're recording this separately. He's just posted onto the chatter as well, so he's, he's sort of reporting live <laughs> on the observations. Uh, so no additional observations between 2004 2012, so you've heard it here first. That's for his search for the moon of S2003J12, I believe. Okay, yeah. I've slightly lost the thread of all the numbers and stuff. Going. It's like trying to read the matrix sometimes. There are a lot of moons out there, so I, I understand why you get confused. I, I wouldn't be able to reel them all off. Yeah, they should give these moons names. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Some sort of committee. Some sort of astronomical union that yeah. is across many countries. And so it is time for the full moon of the month, and I think this might be one of the last ones we do. Uh, I might put out a survey later on in 2021, see if people have ideas for names of what to call the full moon, but I think this feature has kind of run its course, so we'll end on a final hurrah of full moon of the month. So the next full moon in the UK is on the 30th of December, and it is known as the cold moon, the long night moon or dark night moon, and in some cases it's known as the moon before Yule, but considering it's on the 30th of December it's not called that this time. Uh, and do you know what else it is also known as? Uh, without reading the show notes. Without or... reading the show notes. I should know it from last year. Uh, yes. Uh, no, I don't. It is the oak moon, which I thought was a little odd, considering it's winter and most trees are dead or dying or have little leaves, except for the coniferous trees, obviously. But oak moon, I thought that's an odd one for December. So I did a bit of digging on it. The oak moon is the solstice moon so it is to symbolize the summer solstice but also the winter solstice i thought okay that's a nice little bookend of having you know higher the sun lower the sun may as well call them both the oak moon and on this website it suggested things to do during an oak moon such as go on a vision quest (laughs) sorry (laughs) yes it said spend time in nature and receive messages from the oak tree (laughs) Uh, okay. I don't think that's... That doesn't sound too legal. I don't know. There's no specific drugs reference, but I think some mushrooms might be consumed during that activity. The, the mushrooms are not listed in these instructions for how to carry out a vision quest. <laughs> if I look at an oak tree, I'm not expecting a vision <laughs> beyond an oak tree. Are you sure? This is, this is for the oak moon, so you need to go to a hilltop where both sunset and sunrise can be seen clearly visible. Oh, there's instructions. Right, okay, sorry. Begin the quest at sunset and then end it at sunrise. Makes sense. As the sun falls from the sky, say a prayer to the great oak tree for guidance. Then look out for signs, such as animals that cross your paths or shooting stars. By the way, I'm picturing all of this 
in the terrible woods around Gloucester, where the only animals that are going to cross your path are TB-infested badgers or some very hungry fox. And also, it's the middle of winter, and there's light pollution everywhere. You're not going to see a shooting star, especially considering how cloudy the sky is. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously in Cheltenham, I'd go to Cleve Hill, which is such a much better class of hill. I must say. Uh, <laughs> you you we, hill snob. Oh, well, uh, you can actually literally look down upon Gloucester from Cleve Hill. Uh, um, um, but yeah, I, I think this is a, a nice thing to do, but it's very cold. It kind of reminds me of when I was in the army and we were on night ambushes and you're just like, oh, it's cold, I want to fall asleep. Admittedly, uh, I don't think I've told you this one, but uh, when you're very tired, you start hallucinating because that did happen in the military <laughs> when we were on this ambush. Uh, gradually, the sort of trees in the background became like a Spanish villa. And I was like, well, what the hell? <laughs> why, why are we ambushing a Spanish villa? I don't know. I'm hallucinating, but I can't do anything about it. That actually ties into the next step of the vision quest, which is keep a record of your feelings and thoughts and visions throughout the quest. So did you go on a vision quest and not realise it during the army? <laughs> I might have done, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they said it was an ambush. Uh, I think if the uh, the commanding officer said, hey, we're all going on a vision quest, <laughs> we might... <laughs> Uh, I think we might have yeah, sent him off to the medical facility. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I have gone on an inadvertent vision quest. So I, uh, yeah, just felt confused and saw a Spanish villa um, <laughs> just, just beyond the killing zone. So the final step of the vision quest is, at sunrise, give thanks to what you have received from the natural world. So... Thanks, son, for giving me TB and a Spanish Villa vision. Yeah, I think we just shot at it with blanks. <laughs> While screaming over and over again. Uh, but if, if vision quests aren't for you, thankfully this website also had a list of other Oak Moon activities. Oh, good. <laughs> In case that one doesn't quite work out. So, activity one for the Oak Moon, dance outside in the sun. Uh, yeah. Any more? Um, Keep an acorn from the autumn and use it as a charm during the oak moon. Okay, <laughs> I um, that's doable, apart from the fact you should have told me it about three months ago. Yes, exactly. This is useless to me now. Have a gold-themed dinner to celebrate the sun. I could do that, actually. Although, yeah, getting food in at the moment is a bit tricky. It, it is. It's, uh, what about all that gold? Yeah, you can get, like, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of gold. I suppose you could cook some roast potatoes very goldenly. We could get gold leaf for a cake. I went to a wedding yeah. that had gold leaf wedding cake. Yeah. Oh, random other military uh, anecdote. A friend was a sort of security officer on a submarine, and one of the items they had to look after on the in the submarine safe is gold leaf. Uh, they had, like, a £1,000 worth of gold or something on a submarine. So, can you tell me why they keep gold on a submarine? Um, it's not personal, so it's not wedding rings or anything. It, it belongs to the state, and it's for state purposes. Okay, because I was going to say gold on the edge of the Bible, but that'd be really hard to do on a submarine. Okay, so I've got two answers. One is something to do with the reactor, because they're nuclear-powered, so some kind of enrichment, but not sure chucking gold into a reactor will do anything. And the other one is bargaining. So say, like, you run ashore somewhere in a hostile country and you need to bargain your way out of a rogue 
army and you need to gain passage onto their land, you can go, look, gold. <laughs> Admittedly, I think they'll probably work out the submarine's more valuable. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you've got to come across a primitive culture who just ignore the submarine. But Admiral Schmeagel, let go of the gold. It's not precious. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get away in the submarine. Well done, Frodo. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, they do give special forces gold, I think, to, uh, you know, bargain their way out. But it's because a, a submarine is a sort of ship of state. It's a capital ship. It, so it may be called upon at any point to host a party, like an ambassador or something. So if they, if the ship's chef has to cook a very good cake, they need to gild it with gold. Uh, so they've just got to have some gold ready in case they ever have a, a sort of important party suddenly on a submarine, which apparently, according to this person, said it, it just never happens. But you just sign in and out the gold leaf every time. I didn't know that. That's a, that's a nice little bit of trivia. So, have a gold-themed dinner on a submarine to celebrate your lack of sunlight. That's one, th- yeah. one of the oak moon activities. <laughs> Bury a letter to the fairies under an oak tree detailing your summer wishes. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. I wish for no COVID. I'll see if the fairies can do anything, because <laughs> no one else is. Uh... So while I'm while I'm being very dismissive of that, you get these websites where you can actually send your future self an email, send yourself an email three months from now saying you should have done this by now or hope all is well. <laughs> you felt bad then, but hopefully you're feeling good now. I sounded dismissive reading that out, but I really shouldn't be because it's just one of those like nice little reflective moments. So you do you. I think it's a good idea to set yourself goals and see if you achieve them. Hold yourself accountable. So if it's a, a proxy of doing that. Uh, I, I mean, it might be not fairies, but Pfizer. Um, <laughs> I don't know fairies are really up to date with like smart goals. No, that's it. But bury a letter to Pfizer under an oak tree detailing your summer wishes. Is it? Yeah, I want a vaccine, please. <laughs> For all strains, not just the current one. Yeah. The last two. Wear an oak leaf in your hair to bring you luck. Um... I don't think that's going to bring you much luck. Maybe aphids. Yeah, I think my co-workers might sort of come and have a word. I mean, you never know what will come out of it, though, because it might be like, oh, yeah, you know, suddenly we've got a great friendship or something, or, you know, I solve a problem at work and get a pay rise. So, yeah, maybe I'll give it a go. And finally, kiss an oak tree to increase your attractiveness. Obviously, you don't need to do that, Andy, because you can't get any more attractive. Oh, you charmer, you. You must have kissed an oak tree or two in your time. Uh... So, we're going to end full moon of the month, carrying on with the Suan tribe saga, which is the hangover mapping of the names of the full moons. So, January, February, March... Hard time, long day, sore eye. So you've woken up with a hangover, with a hard time, a long day ahead of you and sore eyes. You've tried to cure the hangover with frog, idle and full leaf, having all sorts of hangover remedies. Then for July, August and September, that's when you go out on a walk in the afternoon when the hangover is starting to ease off, but you want to have some fresh air to kind of like really knock it dead. And that's with the black cherries that you eat along the way, the yellow leaf when you need to pee mid-walk because you've had a lot of booze from the night before. And October, November were Gopher Looks Back Moon, the best name ever, but also what we decided was looking back over the night before and realising, oh God, what have I done? November was the Frost Moon, the frosty stares from when you look back. Do you know what the December moon is? I don't know. My knowledge of the Suan tribe is uh, somewhat lacking. Uh, Is it the cold moon? It is not. It is the younger hard time moon, which means we do it all again! Hey! (laughs) 
<laughs> I couldn't believe it when I saw that. It was just like, that's exactly what happens. You have a horrible hangover, never going to drink again. And then you do all the hangover remedies, go for a nice walk. And then it's Saturday afternoon. You're like, oh, may as well have another pint. And you do it all again. Different group of friends invites you out and you don't have the uh, wherewithal to say no. And you don't want to explain. Exactly. Oh, just have just have one. <laughs> and it's never just one, though, is it? No, no. So yes, that is the saga of the hangover full moon names. Uh, I would like to bring back full moon of the month, but I'll do that when I get some listener suggestions for what the full moon name should be. And so we continue with our ongoing feature of And The Next Moon Is, where we try to cover every single moon in the solar system. This week, we're talking about the Jovian moon of Leda. So we've covered the inner moons, the Galilean moons. Last episode, we talked about Themisto, which was a bit of a lone ranger in terms of moons. It wasn't part of any orbital group. This episode, we're talking about Leda, and Leda is part of an orbital group. And this is going to be a common theme with a lot of the moons that we talk about from this point on, which is the smaller moons that are very far out from Jupiter have similar orbital patterns to other moons, and therefore they can be grouped together into what are known as orbital groups. Now, Leda is part of the Himalaya group. The Himalaya group is made of seven moons and named after the largest moon within that group, which is Himalaya. So all those seven moons of the Himalaya group all follow a similar-ish pattern, which means they orbit at roughly the same angle, at roughly the same inclination, and at a similar-ish distance. I know I'm being kind of vague with the ish and sort of similar terminology, but this isn't on an astronomical scale. So when I say similar, it's like plus or minus 25%. Like, they are quite similar, but... If you were looking at the cold hard numbers, you'd think that's not very similar at all. So what would you like to know about Leda? How big is it? How far away is it? And what does it look like? It's the same thing I ask about holiday cottages. How big is Leda? It is 20 kilometres across. How far away is it from Jupiter? 12 million kilometres away. But it's got a eccentricity of 0.2, which means that it's got a kind of oval orbit so it's not always 11 million kilometers from jupiter it's on average 11 sometimes it'll be closer sometimes it'll be further away a little bit more about leda it was discovered in 1974 and was discovered by charles t cole at the mount polymer observatory using the schmidt telescope which is now called the samuel oshin telescope he used this telescope using photographic plates to observe the Jovian sky. So instead of like digital imagery, he developed these photographic plates, used the telescope to take the images, and then looked at the plates afterwards and was like, huh, there's a moon there. So that's how they discovered Leda. Now, it was observed in 1974 for the first time on plates, but it was then spotted again in 1998, and yet again in 2010, and the images of the moon spotted in 2010 have been uploaded to Wikipedia, courtesy of our lovely friend, N3. Hey, well done, N3. Yeah, as he always does, he's uploaded all of the information onto Wikipedia, as in the Wiki Commons page, where click on this link to go to the website, put in this data to find this moon. It's really lovely being given the tools to do this, because quite often with scientific papers, you just like, oh, it's over there. Oh, well, <laughs> what, what, well, what website did you use? Ah, Google it. Oh, but... 
but it's really hard to use. Ah, you can figure it out. I said, like, well, I don't have all the time in the world. Yeah, you have to use some obscure software program that only scientists use, but everyone knows it in the trade. Be one of them. Yes, exactly. I've tried using some of this software and it is, uh, it is very, uh, very quite hard. But Leader does kind of fall into the category of, oh, it's just a bit of space rock around Jupiter, where it's not a volcano moon, it's not an ice moon, might not have life. But it's still an interesting moon because it was discovered using photographic plates in the late 70s. So a lot of moons of Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, these outer gas giants were discovered using satellites. Whereas this one was discovered using photographic plates. That's quite amazing that a rock 20 kilometers across orbiting Jupiter was able to be discovered using photographic plates and a telescope in the 70s. That's insane, yeah. They must have had a good zoom on it. But also, sorry, yeah, I mean, that's to the point where if a car headlight sort of just flashed across the lens or something, you're gonna, <laughs> like, wipe out your plate or something, isn't it? <laughs> Why? Why did we build this observatory next to Route 66? Yeah. Do you want to know how Leda got its name? Yes. Is it got lots of moons behind it called Followers? Aha! Uh, not quite. Leda, it follows the rules of if it's a moon of Jupiter, you have to name it after a lover or a descendant of either Zeus or Jupiter. Quite often, it's always Zeus. And in the case of the outer moons, because Leda is going in a prograde direction, which means it's going in the same direction of Jupiter's spin. So it's prograde moon. Pretty sure it's prograde. You can just re-record it. I'm feeling lucky, Rick. Yeah, I'm okay. feeling lucky. It's a prograde moon. Therefore, it has to end in an A, whereas retrograde moons have to end in an E. So thankfully, Zeus was a very friendly god and had lots of lovers and or descendants. And I say and or because quite often he was a bit incestuous. Leda is named after one of Zeus's consorts. And according to legend, she was seduced, and I use seduced with many, many asterisks next to it. Leda was seduced by Zeus, who disguised himself as a swan when he was walking past Leda and was so overcome by her beauty, he thought, me, god of gods, is not good enough for this. But a swan, a swan will do it. <laughs> So this has been the source of inspiration for many paintings of Leda and Zeus, but that's just one account. Another account, according to one of the other Greek uh, books, whatever they were called, either way, another version is Helen was the offspring of Zeus in the form of a swan and Nemesis in the form of a goose. But according to the legend, Nemesis laid an egg following her encounter with Zeus, which a shepherd then brought to Leda. And then Helen hatched out the egg and Leda raised her as her own daughter. So again, geese, swans, eggs, children. It's a bit like some ancient Jeremy Kyle. It is not. Like the Greek tragedies and the Greek odysseys or whatever they're called are mental. Did you sleep with Leda dressed as a swan but in the form of a goose and she raised your egg? No, no, I'll take... Put you on the lie detector. No, go, go for it, go for it. This is a receipt, right? This is a receipt from Parties R Us and it states clearly a swan outfit. Yeah, that's basically if you go to university and study classics, that's it. Thousand-year-old Jeremy Kyle. I probably could go into a bit more physics about Leda, but I think the most interesting aspect of it is that it's named after a, a weird swan story. So what nickname are you going to give to Leda? I've got a note here saying there's a predictable nickname. Is it Dot? No, the weird swan moon. Okay, right. So I was being far too scientific. Okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll 
I'll put the uh, the dot swan moon. Okay, there you go. I want the uh, reference to be more uh, to do with the moon than the uh, random tale of classics. Dot Swan sounds like a knockoff character from Emmerdale. Yes. In fact, I'm going to put swan.moon so it sounds like a website. And so we end the show on Prime Moonister's Questions. This is the part of the show where you guys can ask a question about the moon or anything moon-related, and we'll try to answer it. Well, we'll just try and answer it. (laughs) So a question we had was based on an article in The Times about uh, building a habitat on the moon. And in the first paragraph, it talks about soil that is sharp and jagged as glass, really high temperatures, really low temperatures, earthquakes tiny rocks that fly faster than bullets. And the question which comes from Elizabeth is, is the ground really that sharp and are there really bullets of rock that could kill you? The answer is yes, but with a lot of caveats on the last part of rocks that could kill you. Let's start with, is the ground really that sharp? And yes, yes it is. The ground is really sharp. In fact, this was a genuine hazard during the Apollo missions. Moon dust has very sharp edges because there's no atmosphere on the moon. There's no air to erode or weather down the very sharp edges. So even though it's like very fine particles of dust on Earth, it's like sand. It still gets in your eye, but it's not razor sharp. It's dulled by gentle erosion from the ocean, from the air, from the wind, all sorts. There's all these erosion processes that dull fine dust particles, whereas on the moon, there isn't. So they are razor sharp, and this was genuinely a problem during the Apollo missions. And it actually caused temporary blindness during one of the missions as well, because it got everywhere. The astronauts would come in into the lunar module with their suit covered in lunar dust, and it would get everywhere. It'd be floating around when they're actually up from the moon's surface. It would get into the actual electricals and not short circuit them, but it would cause problems. It wore through three layers of Kevlar on the astronauts' boots. It was that sharp. It scratched the gold coating on their visors and they had to put extra mud guards on the lunar rovers that they took on subsequent missions because of all this moon dust. I like the way you finish there with extra mud guards. (laughs) (laughs) I'd, I'd be worried about my Kevlar... Boots getting <laughs> gradually wound down in the vacuum of space, you know, flipping out. I mean, Kevlar is um, what they make bulletproof vests out of. You know, it's strong stuff. Yeah, usually when I write the notes, I do kind of pick out the parts you need to know ahead of time and then, oh, the good point to end on, but I didn't do that this time. <laughs> it was like, hmm, Kevlar armour, gold visors, mud flaps. Yeah. So, uh, yes, the particles are genuinely that hazardous. They're always going to be there. I said before there's no atmosphere on the moon. There is an atmosphere, but it is so tiny, it's practically not there. So on Earth, the pressure is 101,000 pascals. On the moon, it's 0.3 nanopascals. That's 10 to the power of 20 times thinner an atmosphere than it is on Earth. So that is... A thousand million billion. (laughs) (laughs) A thousand and then three millions. There you go. So that sounded a bit exasperated because this has gone on for the last five minutes and I've just cut out all of the other crap that I said beforehand where I was very wrong. It is a thousand million billion times lighter or less than the Earth's atmosphere. There's nothing there. Basically, there's no atmosphere. 
Therefore, any impact, any earthquake, anything that is going to cause the ground to shatter and fragment, all those really sharp bits of moon rock, glass, brittle, metal, whatever it is, are just going to remain. They're not going to be worn down by the atmosphere. Okay, so that's the dust, then, that is sharp as glass. What's with the rocks at the speed of bullets? Is someone firing rocks at people? So no one's firing rocks at people, but the universe has a lot of rocks hurtling about. So the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter has many, many asteroids, some which we can see with a telescope, others which are so tiny that we can't see at all. And the average speed of all of these asteroids is about 17.9, so let's say 18 kilometers per second, which is pretty fast. That's about <laughs> the speed of a bullet. Yeah. Quite often, if you look at the moon, it's covered in craters, which means it gets hit by asteroids quite a lot. There's no atmosphere to slow it down. Earth gets hit by, by asteroids and meteors and meteorites and all of those terms that I'm muddling up. The Earth gets hit by a lot of rocks all of the time, but we have an atmosphere to, one, burn them up, two, slow them down, and three, if they do manage to get through the Earth's atmosphere, they have to contend with the air beneath the atmosphere, which will slow it down to terminal velocity, which is no way near 18 kilometers per second. Whereas on the Moon, no atmosphere to slow it down. So quite often you get rocks which are going faster than 18 kilometers a second hurtling into the moon. So how much, in terms of weight, how much mass of material hits the moon per day? I don't know, about a kilogram? 2,800 kilograms. Okay, I was just out. <laughs> so 2.8 tons. Metric tons. That's a skip full of concrete. Yeah, a skip full of concrete just lands on the moon. But that's over the whole of the lunar surface. Okay. So the moon's surface is 38 million square kilometers. And it's not a skip hitting the moon every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's... I don't know. I've, I've had some skip delivery companies that have that level of service. <laughs> they just fling it off the crane into your front garden. So, <laughs> so it's the weight of a full skip spread out. One of the pages that I read described it as musket balls, which weigh about 28 grams. So imagine 100,000 musket balls hitting the surface of the moon every day. But those 100,000 musket balls are being spread across 38 million square kilometers. They've done some wonderful maths here where that's an area a little larger than Canton, Ohio or Glasgow in Scotland being hit by one musket ball per day. Okay. Glasgow has a lot more bullets going around than that. Ooh, Ooh. you judgy so-and-so. Okay, so it's not too dangerous. I mean, there's other dangers on the moon, I think, that are going to be pressing. But, yeah, having a random bullet fired within a sort of, I don't know, 380 square kilometre sort of area, it's a risk. But you've probably got bigger fish to fry if you're in a vacuum of space with either freezing cold temperatures or boiling hot sunlight. It is a risk, and it's a low one, but that's per day. But if you do that per year, 380 square kilometres... All right, let's just make the maths easy and say 365 square kilometres for 365 days. That narrows it down to one kilometre square per day of the year gets one of those bullets. So out of that kilometre square... <laughs> it's your bullet day! <laughs> <laughs> I wanted a cake! <laughs> no, it's a bullet. 
I think what the issue is, making a permanent habitat that takes up a square kilometre, well, that is a very real target for micrometeorites. And the ISS has been hit by micrometeorites as well. So it does happen and you do need to plan for it because you need to make sure your habitat is bulletproof. Otherwise, oxygen will get out, it'll depressurize. You need to make sure it can withstand the bullets. Because, yeah, if you look at, I don't know, war-torn Kosovo or something, where people have been firing bullets, then gradually bits of paint and debris it sort of erodes away at the concrete so the first bullet doesn't get through the next one might sort of knock a bit more concrete off but gradually over time works its way through yeah exactly to begin with it's fine but after a few years if you don't patch it up and we've talked about this on the podcast before resources on the moon are very slim even if you do manage to make it out of lunar regolith or lunar crete as we've talked about is this going to be bulletproof i don't know is that <laughs> oh that was a rhetorical question oh, okay. i think at the moment it is quite strong i think it is bulletproof but i think it needs to be obviously more work needs to be done on it before we can start building it in summary elizabeth yes there is razor sharp moon dust you do need to worry about and yes there are speeding bullets that you don't necessarily need to worry about unless you're a building that wants to remain there for a while <laughs> yes if you plan on being a lunar building you should worry so that's our show. Thank you very much for listening and tune in next time. If you have a question for Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show, please email me or tweet me and we'll include it in Prime Minister's questions next time. So until then, cheerio and thank you for listening. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. I'm here with my co-host Risk. I'm glad <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>